Congress leaves Washington for the holiday weekend without reaching a deal to raise the debt ceiling with the threat of a default looming. It's Friday, May 26th. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from Massachusetts Congresswoman and House Minority Whip Catherine Clark about the debt ceiling negotiations. Also this hour. It's an operation that lasted for a year. It exhausted a lot of Ukrainian troops. Um, it also killed a lot of Ukrainian troops. Inside the long and bloody battle for Bakhmut and the strategic importance of it in Russia's invasion. And this hour, we hear from Noah Khan, one of the dozens of acts taking the stage this weekend at Boston Calling. The more I think about it, I start getting all sweaty. I am really excited playing songs about New England and New England's biggest city. I'm just really over the moon about it and cannot wait to get out there. Sunny in the 60s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. White House and congressional negotiators are working to find compromise over terms of lifting the federal government's debt ceiling. The government could run out of money by next week to pay its bills if Congress does not act. NPR's Windsor Johnston tells us a debt default could upend global financial markets and push the U.S. into recession. After a series of stops and starts this week, the two sides are now signaling some progress, but no deal yet. President Biden says caps in government spending continue to be a major sticking point, with House Republicans refusing to raise the debt ceiling without deep cuts in the budget. Biden reiterated that default is not an option. The Treasury Department warns the U.S. could run out of cash to pay its bills by as soon as next Thursday. NPR's Windsor Johnston reporting. Russia says it is moving ahead with a plan to deploy tactical nuclear weapons in neighboring Belarus. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.S. is condemning the news. The longtime leader of Belarus says the warheads are already on the move. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says so far the U.S. sees no reason to adjust its nuclear posture. We strongly condemn the arrangement. Um, it's the latest example of irresponsible behavior that we have seen from Russia uh, since its full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine over a year ago. Both Belarus and Ukraine gave up their Soviet-era nuclear stockpiles after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Moscow's deal with Belarus would be the first time since then that Russia is deploying nuclear weapons in a former Soviet state. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that it is unconstitutional for counties to keep more money than they're owed when they sell a property for back taxes. From Minnesota Public Radio, Matt Sepik reports the decision is a victory for a 94-year-old woman. When Geraldine Tyler moved to an apartment in 2010, she never sold her Minneapolis condo and racked up $15,000 in taxes and fees. Hennepin County sold the property for $40,000 and kept the difference. Tyler alleged that was an unconstitutional taking of her property. Tyler's attorney, Christina Martin, says 11 other states and Washington, D.C. also engage in what she calls equity theft. At minimum, the Supreme Court's decision sends a very clear message to all states that the government violates the takings clause when it takes more than what's owed. The county says it'll work with the Minnesota legislature to revise the state's tax forfeiture laws. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. The Supreme Court has also ruled to weaken the decades-old Clean Water Act. This could significantly cut federal protections for more than half of the nation's wetlands. These are vital for preventing flooding and cleaning water that Americans need. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. More than one million people in Massachusetts will be heading out of town this holiday weekend. Most of them will drive, and the best time on the road may be right now. The travel group Inrix says the worst time to drive today will be between 3 and 6 this afternoon. It'll also be bad Monday in the early afternoon. Over at Logan Airport, passenger volume is expected to approach pre-pandemic levels with about 100 140,000 travelers this weekend. Massport Aviation Director Ed Frenny says travel numbers were also high last weekend. This weekend, we expect very similar numbers. You know, you've got the Celtics that are back in the playoffs, contributing to a lot of activity here at Logan. It's stronger than it's been, certainly during the pandemic, and it's very, very close to where we were when we had record numbers in 2019. That year, Logan saw more than 42 million passengers. Members of the Massachusetts House and Senate will soon start negotiations to finalize the state's budget. That follows the Senate unanimously approving its nearly $56 billion plan yesterday. The House passed its version last month. The deadline for the two sides to sort out the differences between their plans is July 1st. A Boston police lieutenant facing drunk driving charges was previously fired by the department. John Early is on administrative leave following his arrest last weekend in Walpole. The Boston Globe reports Early was previously fired after leaving the scene of a crash in 2015. Documents show there were open beers in his vehicle at the time. But Early was reinstated to the Boston Police Department following a union appeals process. Emergency regulations for striped bass go into effect today in Massachusetts. Those regulations reduce the size of stripers that recreational fishermen can keep. WBUR's John Bender reports. Researchers say the change could protect about half the striped bass old enough to spawn. Regulators are in the middle of a decade-long project to rebuild the fish population. Mike Armstrong is deputy director of the state's Division of Marine Fisheries. He pushed for the change when researchers discovered last year's harvest about doubled from the previous year. Which has never happened in the last 30, 40 years. So it completely turned the restoration schedule on its ear. We went from but a 95% chance of hitting our target by 2029 to a 15% chance. The emergency rule will be in effect through the fall and could be extended into next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by HBO. Sydney Sweeney stars in the new HBO original film Reality, based on the story of Reality Winner, who went from working for the NSA to being interrogated by the FBI. Premieres Monday at 10 p.m. on Max. No NBA team has ever come back from a 3-0 playoff deficit to win a series, but the Celtics are now halfway there. They beat the Heat 110-97 last night at the Garden. Boston still trails in the play- playoff series three games to two, but Celtics guard Jalen Brown is looking forward to game six tomorrow night in Miami. It's going to take everything. It's going to be a dogfight. I imagine those guys to be, you know, play better than they played tonight, you know, and they're going to come out aggressive. We got to be ready to take they they punch at home. We got to be ready to, to be resilient and come out and, and do what we're supposed to do. 
If the Celtics can force a Game 7, it'll be Monday night at the Garden. The Red Sox will be back in action tonight as they visit the Arizona Diamondbacks. Sunny today and in the 60s, clear overnight with a low around 50. Sunny tomorrow and in the 70s, sunny on Sunday and in the 80s. Memorial Day will be sunny and in the 70s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. In a few minutes, we'll tell you about an important runoff election coming up this weekend in Turkey, which should determine who will lead that important NATO ally. But first, back to a big issue here in the U.S., the debt ceiling. And the deal on that is there's no deal, at least not yet. With just a week before a crucial deadline, lawmakers in the White House still haven't reached an agreement to prevent a national default. Most of Congress is already out of town for the Memorial Day recess. Deputy, I'm uh, sorry, a Democratic House Minority Whip Catherine Clark is with us to tell us more about this. She's been in touch with the White House and her caucus about their priorities for a deal. Good morning to you, Congresswoman. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. What's your sense of where the negotiations stand now? Uh, at this point, we are being held captive by extremists in the GOP. And what do I mean by that? I mean that the fever they have to extract pain from the American people for in exchange for their uh, vote to raise the debt ceiling has not broken. And we are there at the negotiating table saying, let's be bipartisan. Let's put the American people first. I can tell you, Michelle, we are fighting like hell for them because we are so afraid of what will happen to, to kids in this country, to veterans, to teachers, to first responders, if the extremists in the GOP take us over the default cliff. Well, they do have the votes, though. So they have the votes to, to do this, the, the, as, you, as you know better than anybody. They, you know, margins in the House are so narrow that they do have significant power. So how do you plan to overcome that? What we have done as Democrats is say we are united because we know whose side we're fighting on, and it's that of families at home. I, I don't know how our colleagues are going to look veterans in the eye this weekend as we commemorate Memorial Day. They are holding our veterans hostage. Just look at what they're proposing. $2 billion from veterans health care that would translate to 30 million doctor's appointments across the VA system to be canceled. And all of this is to protect their tax scam of 2017. So Every single House Democrat has signed a discharge petition saying, let's do the right thing. We can have a discussion about spending and deficit reduction, but it is not, and it should never be, at the expense of a hostage-taking situation, so, so there which are, is exactly yeah. where we are. So you, you mentioned you mentioned that there are clawbacks that you, you you and your caucus specifically oppose, but there are reports that say the Republicans will agree to raise the debt ceiling for two years in exchange for limits on discretionary spending, except for spending on the military and veterans, as well as a ten billion dollar budget cut at the IRS. Do you does that comport with what you know too? Is that is that accurate? And is that the sort of the outline of where things are going? 
Well, I think if they were not still fighting for extreme cuts, um, we would have a compromise. So I can tell you that they are committed to, to hurting American families. I mean, their proposal is to cut Medicaid for 2 million people. They are about kids without teachers and parents without jobs. So we are eager for them to come forward, meet the reasonableness that the White House has put forward with some appreciation of where, they, where the, the position they are putting our economy in and the catastrophe that is days away. So we're, we're, we stand 213 strong. We have signed a discharge okay. petition and we are looking for five patriots across the aisle to come and join well, us. Well, you know, all the Democrats aren't, aren't satisfied with how President Biden has handled this process. Was it a miscalculation to wait so close to the deadline to actually uh, negotiate in earnest? Let, let's review the facts of that. The president met with Speaker McCarthy back in February and said, let's put our budgets out and have that discussion about deficit reduction and spending separate from the threat, the extortion of taking us off the, the default cliff. And that's exactly what President Biden did on March 9th. So no complaints. Put, so no complaints about his his side of this. No complaints about the president's handling of this at all on your side. Listen, we have a lot of anxiety and frustration on our side because we are dealing with members of the GOP who no longer believe the government should work for people. Okay. They don't believe in paving our roads, clean air and water. Okay. We have confidence in the White House that okay. they are fighting for the American people. Okay, we're going to have to leave it we'll there. And we'll get through this. All right, Congresswoman, we're sorry, we're going to have to leave it there for now. That's Democratic House Whip Representative Catherine Clark. She represents Massachusetts in the House. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Retail giant Target is pulling merchandise that was part of its Pride Month collection that comes after a wave of critique and complaints that even included threats against its workers. Target has not responded to follow-up questions from NPR, but according to Reuters, the chain dropped products from an LGBTQ plus brand that included spooky gothic imagery, including skulls and Satan in pastel colors. The company was also blasted by conservative activists for selling quote-unquote tuck-friendly women's swimsuits that allowed trans people to keep their private parts private. As NPR's Joe Hernandez reports, this all comes amid moves in many parts of the country targeting LGBTQ plus people. Target's Pride collection includes adult and children's clothes, calendars, books, and more. Critics online and in the media blasted some of the products, and Target said it was removing the items to protect workers' safety. Videos on social media showed people in Target stores confronting employees about certain products and even destroying Pride displays. Given these volatile circumstances, the company said in a statement, we are making adjustments to our plans, including removing items that have been at the center of the most significant confrontational behavior. The worry now, according to some experts who study extremism, is that Target's decision to remove these items could encourage more violent behavior against the LGBTQ plus community. If they're going to wade in on this and they're going to put support out there for the LGBTQ plus population, I think once they enter that fray, they have a responsibility to 
stand by that community. Michael Edison Hayden is a senior investigative reporter and spokesperson for the Southern Poverty Law Center. As soon as you back down like this, you send a message that intimidation works. And that makes it much scarier than if you had never started it to begin with. Target is just the most recent company to face criticism and boycott threats over products supporting the LGBTQ plus community. Bud Light faced a major social media backlash last month after Anheuser-Busch ran an ad campaign featuring popular trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. This weekend, Turkish voters will cast their ballots in the second round of a presidential election. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan failed to win a clear majority in the first round, so he faces a runoff against just one challenger. And NPR's Peter Kenyon is following this story in one of the most important countries in its region. Hey there, Peter. Hi, Steve. So when you talk with voters, do you get an idea that people think they could change their president that they've had for the last two decades, the leader they've had the last two decades? At the moment, the trend seems to be uh, retaining the president they've had for the last two decades. Many of the people I've spoken with say they believe unless there's some dramatic change in the vote uh, on Sunday, they do expect Erdogan to win another five years in office. Even strong supporters of the challenger, veteran politician Kamal Kilic-Darolu, say they just don't think two weeks is enough time to make up the difference. Okay, but there have been so many stories about frustration with Erdogan, uh, about the dismay of the opposition about protests surrounding the response to an earthquake. How would he be in position to hold on to power? Well, it is remarkable. I mean, and and then look at the currency. The lira has plunged to another record low. It's now 20 to the U.S. dollar. Uh, When I first started reporting from here, it was like one and a half to the dollar. So it's really in bad shape. Families say they can barely pay for basics. Anything else is beyond reach. I spoke with an analyst, Mustafa Akyol. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He said Erdogan has managed to redirect attention away from this terrible economy by focusing on himself, adopting the mantle of a religiously devout leader, steering this majority Muslim nation through difficult times. Akyol says, surprisingly to some, that message has really resonated with voters. It's not the economy here. It's identity politics and culture war. All good, pious, conservative Muslims should vote for him because he's their savior. He's reviving the glory of the Ottoman Empire. He's making Turkey great and Muslim again. He has created a huge propaganda machine, which is pumping this narrative every day to Turkish society through media, through soap operas on TVs. Now, after the first round, as I checked in with voters, uh, the comments I heard most frequently reflected uh, this sharp disappointment with Turkish politics in general, plus a lot of worries for how long they can make ends meet. Uh, But there also seems to be a base of belief, maybe it's just a hope, that Erdogan is the one to turn things around, uh, despite his unorthodox economic policies that some are blaming for the soaring inflation we see now. Okay, so we've got the economy, we've got these cultural issues or culture war issues. What else is on on voters' minds? Well, in a word, immigration. Uh, a lot of anger over that in the Turkish Republic. You might remember over a decade ago, it was Erdogan's government who began welcoming Syrians and other migrants fleeing either conflict or economic hard times at home. Uh, Europe had shut its doors. They were paying Turkey to keep the migrants. Now, as Turkish families struggle, calls for the migrants to be sent home have been growing, and both Erdogan and Kilic Durolu have been listening. Erdogan says a million are going home, and Kilic Durolu says similar. When do the results come in? 
Well, the polls uh, are open all day Sunday. They close at 5 p.m. Istanbul time, and we should be getting unofficial results uh, a few or several hours later. Amazing reflection of politics in Turkey and around the world. Peter, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. That's NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition. This week, Russia claimed victory in Bakhmut after a long, bloody battle. We look at why the Ukrainian city is so strategically crucial. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Clear skies and highs in the 60s today. Still clear tonight with a low around 50. Tomorrow, sunny with a high in the mid-70s. Sunny and highs in the mid-80s on Sunday. Then clear skies and back to the 70s for Memorial Day. It's 53 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from A24 with You Hurt My Feelings from Nicole Holof Center. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies star in a marriage comedy about the white lies people tell to those they love the most. Opens only in theaters May 26th. From Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges, Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling essays and college applications. More at myprompt.com. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service, with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. This is NPR. It's Friday! Pardon the brief celebration. And it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Nearly five years ago, a Chinese scientist shocked the world with this announcement. Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Lala came crying into the world as healthy as any other babies a few weeks ago. Lulu and Nana, the world's first gene-edited babies, were created in secret in China by Hu Jinkui, who was later sentenced to three years in prison for, quote, illegal medical practices, unquote. And now that he's out, rather than lying low, he is back in the business of editing genes. NPR's John Ruert was the first journalist to visit his office. He Jianhui lives on the outskirts of Beijing, and we meet him at a mostly empty co-working space that's part of a business incubator. Oh, hi. Hey. How are you? Yeah, I'm John. Hey. Hi. Great to meet you. Good. Okay. So your office is in here? In this you want to come to my office? Is that right here? Yeah. Just follow here. me. <laughs> to be here with this man is sort of surreal. 
His announcement about the gene-edited babies in 2018 was historic, and it set off a firestorm of global criticism. There were accusations that he had grossly violated medical ethics, that he was like Dr. Frankenstein. Then he went silent. Hu's only recently started to speak out. So one of the first things we wanted to know was how he felt about what he did and whether he had drawn any lessons from it. I did it too quickly. Yeah, I have been thinking of uh, a lot in the past four years. Yeah, I did it too quickly. Ho would not elaborate on what he means when he says he did it too quickly. What he did was edit the genes of human embryos to try to make them immune to HIV. He was widely condemned because the move sparked fears that he had opened the door to designer babies, and no one knew whether it was safe or how it might affect the health of the babies. So we asked him, how are those babies, now five-year-old kids? Well, what I can tell is they are living a normal, peaceful, uh, long-disturbed life and uh, long-disturbed. Again, pressed for details, he declined to comment. He wouldn't talk about his prison experience either. Well, I don't want to talk anything on that anymore. Don't talk about it. Was it in Beijing? Where were you? Uh, (laughs) Just let it go. The past is the past as far as He Jianhui is concerned. I think uh, not, no one can rewrite the history or go back there and do a better view or something. No. Uh, I just want to let it go so I can move on to my new project to, to cure the patients. He says he set up a new lab where he's using CRISPR gene editing technology to come up with a cure for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD. It's a genetic disorder that causes muscles to waste away. And he says he decided to do it because he was approached by patients who knew his name from news coverage of his baby gene editing. There are over 2,000 DMD patients. Uh, They are writing to me, uh, text me, uh, make a phone call to me. Uh, They want me to develop a therapy for them. Ho says he's got some seed money, including from two American donors who he won't name. And he says he has five people working with him and other collaborators outside Beijing. He won't let us visit the lab, though. Currently, we, we are at a stage and we, we designed the experimental protocol and we are testing some of the formula. In a few months, uh, we are going to do the animal study using mice. After mice, it's dogs, then monkeys. And he says he hopes clinical trials on humans can start in 2025. That makes some people nervous. He very much wants to rehabilitate his reputation. Kiran Musanuru is a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania who's an expert in gene editing. He's followed He Jianhui's case closely. He says in editing the genes of the babies, not only did He cross ethical lines, the science was bad and dangerous. You know, he's, he's not a physician. He has no medical training whatsoever. He has no training in clinical trials. He took it upon himself to run what he viewed as a clinical trial. And, you know, to fast forward several years and what he's trying to do now, I, I, I can see it playing out all over again. He says the odds are heavily against He coming close to a cure for Duchenne muscular dystrophy in such a short time on the cheap. It's dangerous, and several major drug companies have been working on it for years. There's a reason why it is so expensive to develop drugs and why it takes so long, because you have to have a very, very, very high bar in terms of rigor. You've got to make sure that this is safe. Otherwise, you know, your patients are going to die when you give them a treatment that's not well vetted. A group of Chinese scientists and legal experts have reportedly called on the authorities here to ban He from future experiments involving people. But it doesn't seem to phase him. 
I'm a scientist. I was trained in, in a college in the United States to be a scientist. He got his PhD at Rice University and did a postdoc at Stanford. To solve science problem, to do something, help people, it does, that's something in my blood. It's, uh, it's not easy to change. Science may be in his blood, but some wonder, why would the Chinese government allow a convicted criminal to get back into the gene editing game? After all, his last project caused a massive stir and to some reflected poorly on China. Ben Hurlbut, an expert in bioethics at Arizona State University, has a possible answer. What's at stake is a kind of race for supremacy in biotechnology. Uh, and that has a kind of nationalist dimension to it. He Jinkui wasn't some rogue scientist who went off the rails, he says. He had support, and others in China knew what he was doing. The baby gene editing project may not have played well with the international community, but what He did was an undeniable first. China was first. He is now looking forward, and he says trust in him should not be based solely on previous experience. It's based on what I'm doing at this moment, and show the data we have, show the approval we have, show the ethic guidance we have, everything that will build the trust. On He's desk is a statuette of Guan Gong, a Taoist god who represents loyalty to the king and is said to keep bad fortune at bay. He also recently traveled to the Wudang Mountains in central China, where he consulted a Taoist priest about his fortune. He told me uh, after extremely bad luck uh, comes good luck. And that's something He Jianghui is hoping for. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. This is NPR News. Welcome to Friday. Today's top stories are next. Coming up at 7.45 on Morning Edition, NPR's Planet Money team looks at why it's so difficult to accurately predict what's going to happen in the job market. It's 7.29. You're invited to WBUR's next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, June 7th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details are at wbur.org slash open meetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A Russian missile strike on a health clinic in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro is blamed for at least one death and more than a dozen injuries. The BBC's Sasha Schlichter says Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is calling today's attack a crime against humanity. Zelensky posted a video of smoke billowing from roofless buildings with blown-out windows. Online footage shows rescuers helping people with blood on their faces escape from the clinic through corridors full of rubble. Zelensky commented, Russian terrorists once again confirmed their status of fighters against everything humane and honest. Dnipro is several hundred miles southeast of Kiev. An investigative committee in the Texas House has approved articles of impeachment against the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, a Republican. Sergio Martinez Beltran with the Texas Newsroom in Austin says Paxton is calling the impeachment effort illegitimate. 
there are 20 articles of impeachment that include constitutional bribery, abuse of official capacity. Paxton denies any wrongdoing, and he's even accused the Speaker of the Texas House, who is also a Republican, of trying to push him out of office. A vote on the articles of impeachment by the State House is not expected before tomorrow. This is NPR News from Washington. The founder of the far-right extremist group Oath Keepers has been sentenced to 18 years in prison. Stuart Rhodes was convicted of seditious conspiracy for his role in the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. A federal judge in Washington agreed with the Justice Department that Rhodes' actions should be punished as terrorism that raised the recommended sentence under federal guidelines. Separately, the head of the group's chapter in Florida, Kelly Meggs, was sentenced to 12 years in prison. A federal appeals court has overturned a decision on how many grizzly bears can be killed in Wyoming's Bridger Teton National Forest. Aaron Bolton with Montana Public Radio says environmental groups had sued the government. In 2019, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said it would allow 72 grizzlies to be killed over a 10-year period for conflicts with livestock grazing on federal land near Yellowstone National Park. Environmental groups sued, saying the decision would imperil the threatened species' recovery because it did not account for the impact that killing female grizzlies would have on the larger Yellowstone population. The Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled the decision violated the Endangered Species Act and has asked the Fish and Wildlife Service to reissue a decision that complies with the law. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. Dow futures are down 57 points. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she's reviewing the new redistricting map the city council passed this week. A federal judge said the council's previous map improperly broke up districts based on race. Wu says she wants to make sure the new map is legally sound before she signs off on it. We're getting some of the um, legal experts to review it just to make sure all the Voting Rights Act parameters and legal parameters are set. So um, we will look to act quickly on it, though, after that is done. Wu says a new district map needs to be in place by Tuesday in order to hold the fall elections on time. Because of the new map, lawmakers on Beacon Hill are working to push back the deadline for candidates to file to run in city races. Massachusetts lawmakers want to combat the opioid crisis by putting a recovery center on a decommissioned ship. Mental and behavioral health care would be available on the ship. It would also provide housing for people being treated there. The measure was passed as part of the $56 billion budget approved by the Senate yesterday. Tom Hanks told Harvard graduates, the enemy of truth is not lies, but indifference. The award-winning actor, producer, and author spoke at the school's commencement ceremony yesterday in Cambridge. He said, we're all created equally, but differently, and it's everyone's responsibility to make America better. Justice and the American way are within our grasp, no matter our gender, our faith, our station, our heritage or genetic makeup. At the UMass Boston commencement yesterday, a surprise, Quincy-based billionaire Rob Hale was the speaker, and he gave each graduate $1,000 in cash. The first 500 is for you. It's a celebration of all you have done to be here today. The second 500 is a gift for you to give. 
to somebody or somebody else or another organization who could use it more than you. The money went to nearly 2,500 graduates. It's 7.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Celtics remain alive to play another day. They avoided elimination last night by beating the Heat. 110 to 97 at the Garden. Boston still trails the best of seven series, three games to two. Game six will be tomorrow night in Miami. The Red Sox will try to snap their four-game losing streak tonight as they visit the Arizona Diamondbacks. A sunny Friday today will have temperatures in the 60s. Tonight, those fall to the 50s. Then it looks like a great weekend. Sunny in mid-70s on Saturday. Sunny in mid-80s on Sunday. It drop at, drops back to the 70s on Monday for a sunny Memorial Day. It's 54 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from A24 with You Hurt My Feelings from Nicole Holof Center. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies star in a marriage comedy about the white lies people tell to those they love the most. Opens only in theaters May 26th. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. A small city in eastern Ukraine, once home to 70,000 people, is now empty and demolished. Russia claimed victory in Bakhmut a few days ago. It used the private Wagner military force to take territory there in the longest and bloodiest battle in the war. The many analysts following this fight include a native of Ukraine, Katerina Stepanenko, with the Institute for the Study of War. So we called her up to talk. You know, I should just tell you my hypothesis, my presumption is that Bakhmut itself is not all that important. But maybe you're going to tell me otherwise. So maybe we should begin the interview right there. What significance, if any, is this particular city, other than it's been written about a lot in recent weeks? That's a good question. I mean, I just published a piece about what was the significance of Bakhmut from the beginning of the war and why it had diminished in operational significance by the end of the battle. Now, my thinking here was that one town or another is really not that important, certainly not as important as who destroys what military force. Stepanenko had her own view. So originally, the battle for Bakhmut was said to be completed in October, right? So right around the same time that Putin was um, completing his uh, partial mobilization, and it was something that he needed immediately, but he wasn't able to achieve it. And then the next date was New Year's, right? He needed to achieve some sort of victory anywhere, and he wasn't able to do that. And ultimately, Bakhmut, you know, reached the point where now it's causing a lot more concern, um, especially within the Russian military correspondents, military bloggers world, where they're worried that Russia will not be able to continue an offensive past Bakhmut because it had culminated. I recently read a dispatch in the New Yorker magazine by a correspondent who spent two weeks with a Ukrainian unit 
on the front lines near the city of Mahmoud, and the overwhelming impression of that article is of people being killed, that the Wagner Group had these conscript recruits that they pushed forward like zombies, it was said, and many, many of them died, but they also killed many, many Ukrainians. The Ukrainian unit in question had only a few veterans left, and the rest of the slots were filled by recent draftees replacing people who had been killed. This seems to have been a place of enormous death. Yes, it is. Uh, it is in fact true. It's something that it's an operation that lasted for a year. It exhausted a lot of Ukrainian troops. Um, it also killed a lot of Ukrainian troops. However, the defense itself has proven to be strategically important for uh, Ukrainian forces, who have likely culminated Wagner attack in um, Bakhmut. This all is becoming more evident um, against the backdrop of. Ukrainian planned counteroffensives and is exposing a major weakness in why the culminated forces are not necessarily a great strategy for Russia in the long term. We also hear reports that suggest that Russia is running out of equipment. They're having to draw on older and older Soviet-era supplies of equipment to keep their troops with tanks and artillery and other important things. Is Ukraine receiving weapons and supplies more rapidly than they are destroyed? I wouldn't say so. Russia still has that capacity to draw on old storages, on old supplies, and put them on the battlefield. That is something that we are still not overpowering Russia in. However, Ukrainians did signal that they respect a lot more quality over quantity, Mm -hmm. and they have been very smart in the way that they ration their um, Heimer strikes, for example, their storm shadows. So in that sense, the the strategy approach here that Russia has is less focused on the long-term impacts on their stockpiles than what Ukrainians have who have to conserve and understand that they have limited stock available to them to fight with. Katerina Stepanenko, thanks so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much as well. It's Memorial Day weekend, the unofficial start of summer, and as you might imagine, it's big business in Florida. This weekend, though, some businesses that depend on tourism are worried after the NAACP and the Human Rights Campaign issued travel advisories. Adrian Andrews with member station WFSU explains. Just as the summer travel season starts in Florida, civil rights groups are taking aim at Governor Ron DeSantis' attacks on diversity initiatives, African-American studies, and LGBTQ rights. The NAACP is advising travelers to be cautious. I'm concerned because Daytona is known for being the um, family vacation drive, you know, the beach that you can drive to. Amy Trebrero owns Millie's Restaurant and Catering in Daytona Beach. She just opened her second seafood restaurant in Ormond Beach as her business grew in recent years and became a popular spot for travelers. They can very easily decide to just go to Georgia or North Carolina or, you know, somewhere on the Outer Banks as well, too, if they're driving. The travel warnings do not call for a boycott or ban of Florida, but they are a call to action, says Democratic State Representative Chevron Jones. When you look at what has happened in this state over the past two to three years, it has been a totally complete disregard for black and brown communities. He points to new laws that limit what can be taught about African-American history and what books can be in schools. Tourism officials say Florida broke a record last year with nearly 138 million visitors to the state. 
And if that number falls, minority businesses in Florida could also take a hit, says Antonio Jefferson. He runs the Big Bend Chamber of Commerce. While people may think that that type of approach may be impactful, definitely in this time, there are bigger issues that are out there that may have an impact on our economy. Jefferson's job is to promote and protect minority-owned businesses across the Florida panhandle. He says there are other ways to engage in the political process. At the end of the day, we slow this economy down. We're impacting families, individuals throughout our state. We could not support anything that would have an adverse impact on our economy. Governor Ron DeSantis calls the travel advisories a total farce while mayors of big Democratic cities said they embrace diversity and welcome everyone regardless of state policy. For NPR News, I'm Adrian Andrews in Tallahassee. Why is it that a favorite tune or melody can help calm a little person and ease their way into sleep? The wonder and the science of lullabies this afternoon on All Things Considered. You can listen where you are, on your phone, your laptop, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News. It is finally Friday on WBUR, coming up in about 10 minutes on Morning Edition. Among the 50-plus acts taking the stages at Boston Calling this weekend is Noah Kahn, who writes songs about small-town New England. Now the forecast, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says it's a good one. What an incredible stretch of weather setting up for our long weekend. Lots of sunshine today, highs in the mid to upper 60s, a light onshore wind, sunny skies, and a little warmer into the 70s tomorrow, right around 70 on Cape Cod. Sunday, the warmest of the bunch, 80 to 85. It'll be bright and breezy. We turn cooler at the coast on Memorial Day with the wind off the ocean, but still beautiful. Highs in the low 70s, near 80 inland. Enjoy. It's 54 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Burlington-based Desktop Metal is being acquired by another 3D printing company. Stratasys will acquire Desktop in an all-stock deal valued at $1.8 million. The Minnesota company expects to cut $50 million worth of expenses after the merger, but leaders say the cuts will not affect Boston-area workers. A Barnes & Noble in Massachusetts is becoming only the second location in the national booksellers chain to union Workers at the store in Hadley say they want higher pay and solutions to issues with their work schedules. The first union at a Barnes & Noble was formed in New Jersey earlier this month. It's 746. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com.
This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The team at NPR's Planet Money sometimes asks economists what they think will happen next, which is a tough question given that one of the best indicators is supposed to be the job market and monthly employment reports keep defying predictions. Here's NPR's Mary Childs. We know that when we ask our prestigious, world-famous economic forecasters to look in their little crystal balls, which is something they have because that's how economics works, there will be a lot of room for error. Forecasting is impossible, especially in and after the pandemic economy, when the unexpected just kept happening. When we look at forecasting, we always think about who's going to be wrong less, right? Right. That's Joe Brusuelas. He's the chief economist at RSM, a tax and consulting firm. Now, for the most part, the super unexpected stuff seems to be in the past. The ports are no longer so backlogged. The Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates so many times, which seems to have helped to cool historic inflation. And those higher rates have also helped an absolutely bananas housing market to calm down. But the labor market is still confounding forecasters and the Fed. It's been way more resilient than anyone predicted. A quick recap on the jobs picture. In May 2020, in the depths of the pandemic, it wasn't clear how long the recession would last. Turned out it did not last. When we take a look at the emergence out of the pandemic recession compared to the previous recessions, this recovery looks unlike anything we've seen since the 1980s. I mean, it's truly impressive. Just a year later, consumer spending was high, and the U.S. added almost six and a half million jobs in 2021. But then, last year, the full-scale war in Ukraine started, which helped to keep inflation higher than anyone would like for longer. To fight it, the Fed hiked interest rates 10 times. And basically everyone thought it was super likely that the labor market would have to cool substantially. Everyone but our expert, Sung Won Son, an economics professor at Loyola Marymount University. Last year, when we asked him for a prediction, he told us the economy would add a robust 350,000 jobs per month. That's a lot of jobs. Turned out, the economy added 352,000 jobs per month. Wow, you mean I missed it by 2,000? How did I do that? I assumed that the economy would come back, especially in employment, and it did. So when we were looking for predictions through the end of 2023, we asked Sohn again. I'm predicting 150,000 jobs, which means that the labor market will remain fairly tight. So that's going to continue for a while. We also got Brusuelas' prediction. He sees slightly fewer jobs added, 125,000 per month, because he sees a huge wave of folks retiring, years of constrained immigration, and a smaller, young generation aging into the workforce. So not enough workers to fill all the available jobs. He and Sohn do have different visions for the economy, but not that different. Which is kind of reassuring, as if maybe things are settling down enough to have some clarity and consensus. Mary Childs, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
This is NPR News. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up at 810 on Morning Edition, we get analysis from a GOP strategist of the growing field of Republican presidential candidates, including the newest entry, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It's 751. Jean Luen Yang's 2006 graphic novel, American Born Chinese, has been made into a TV show. And that meant changing some of the ways the story deals with Asian American identity and harmful stereotypes. Obviously, the conversation about Asian Americans, about race in general, has changed from then until now. We'll dig into some of those changes on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Congress is leaving Washington for the holiday weekend, despite there being no deal yet on raising the debt ceiling. A Russian strike on a Ukrainian medical clinic left at least one person dead and more than a dozen others injured. Meanwhile, the U.S. is condemning a new deal by Russia to deploy nuclear weapons in Belarus. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. 60s today under sunny skies, 50s tonight and it stays clear. Tomorrow, a sunny Saturday in the mid-70s. We may reach the mid-80s on on Sunday under sunny skies. It stays sunny for Memorial Day, but drops back to the 70s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. And Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The three-day Boston Calling Music Festival gets underway today in Alston. More than 50 acts will take the stages. One of them is a young, dyed-in-the-wool New Englander named Noah Kahn. The 26-year-old singer-songwriter star has been rising rapidly with help from a song about Vermont that's gone viral. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports on how and why Kahn's love for the region became a music for his music. Noah Kahn started writing songs when he was just a little kid in Hanover, New Hampshire. I was surrounded by a lot of land and a lot of space, and I wasn't a great student. I found it really hard to focus on school, and, and with that, I kind of ended up imagining a lot. Kahn went on to record poppy folk tunes in high school with friends and posted them online. Soon enough, a major record company noticed, and Kahn decided to forego college for a career in music. It took him to Nashville, New York, and Los Angeles, but he missed home and flew back a lot to see his parents who moved to the tiny town of Stratford, Vermont. In late 2020, Khan started a song inspired by where he really wanted to be. I wrote a verse and a chorus, and I uploaded it to TikTok, and you know, I almost deleted it because I was like, this stinks. And I was really gleaning a lot of my confidence from how people responded to my songs. As you promised me that I was more than all the miles combined, you must have... Well, Khan was wrong. 75,000 people listened to that tease of stick season. The full song went viral in 2022 and has hundreds of millions of global streams. Now it's like an anthem for Vermont. But it's the season of the sticks And I saw your mom She forgot that I existed And it's half my fault But I just like to play the victim I'll drink 
Khan says stick season is the grim transitional time between autumn and winter, when the foliage has fallen and the snow hasn't arrived. For him, the song's emotionally raw lyrics about the ghosts of a relationship and being left behind shed light on life beyond beautiful leaves and maple syrup. What I really, really appreciate is when I'm in like Nebraska or Missouri and people are singing those words because it reminds me that music is universal and people can feel isolated in their environment no matter where they are. And I do think that's a part of the reason that people connect to that song. That's definitely how I felt when I wrote the song. So I thought that if I piled something good and all my bad that I could cancel out the darkness I inherited from dad. No, I am no longer funny because I missed the way you laughed. Once called me forever, now you still can't call me back and I... Stick season sparked an epiphany for Khan. It validated the pull he felt to write from his heart about the region he loves. So Khan crafted more small-town New England stories and characters for an album that's topped the charts since last fall. He says an older single man's search for companionship in rural Vermont drives the song Northern Attitude. I find like people in New England a lot of times can come off as you know a little bit bristly and reserved. But these people still are human and are looking for love and can seem like tough nuts to crack, but people still want to, you know, have that connection. So I wanted to write about that. some deep, dark feelings through his writing. He says he struggled with anxiety and depression since he was young. But while the lyrics are often about loneliness and longing, the music is deliberately upbeat. I wanted to use, you know, chord progressions and production that lifted people up and allowed them to think about these feelings without feeling negative about them all the time. And I wanted the music to provide some of that hope for people when they listen to the lyrics. Khan's musical road trips take us on highways, down dirt roads, and past lighthouses. The song Maine on the EP Cape Elizabeth is an ode to the seaside town where his girlfriend's dad lives. I want to go to Maine. A lot of Khan's fans have tattoos of the lighthouse on Cape Elizabeth's album cover. That loyalty wasn't lost on Boston Calling co-founder Brian Appel when he noticed Khan's star rising last year. Sometimes these singer-songwriters just end up connecting with an audience in a way that, you know, is like tattoo-worthy. And I think that he's got some fans that are going to be with him for life just coming out of the gate the way that he did. Khan still can hardly believe a kid who grew up doing open mics is playing the huge hometown festival. The more I think about it, I start getting all sweaty. Um, I'm really excited. Playing songs about New England and New England's biggest city, I'm just really over the moon about it and cannot wait to get out there. Khan lives in Watertown now with his girlfriend who teaches in Roxbury. After Boston Calling, his band embarks on a sold-out four-month cross-country tour. Khan knows he'll miss New England, especially Vermont, but his German shepherd Penny is going along for the ride. I'm hoping it'll be okay, but if you catch me in like two weeks, I'll probably be like crying for maple syrup. <laughs> we'll see. I'm homesick. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea.
and his band take the stage tomorrow at Boston Calling. And if you're headed to Boston Calling, you'll have some great weather for it. Today, sunny in 60s, 50s tonight, then sunny all weekend with 70s on Saturday, 80s on Sunday, and 70s on Memorial Day. It's 56 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. Bailey Donahue can never forget the moment when she got the news. I see two men in uniform standing in my living room. My mother is on her knees kneeling atop a carpet my dad sent us from Afghanistan. You have the wrong guy, she cries out. I walk towards my mom and wrap my arms around her. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Gold star children of fallen soldiers tell their stories. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Negotiators say they're close to a deal to avoid a federal default, but big differences remain as Congress heads home for the holiday weekend. It's Friday, May 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up three years after George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis, his uncle is advocating for a bill that would require law enforcement to provide medical care to people in custody. As soon as a suspect bellers, I'm hurt. They have to get them medical assistance. Also, the Supreme Court cuts the number of waterways that get federal protection, a ruling seen as a win for industry and developers. And this hour, the Taylor Swift tour may have moved on from Foxborough, but the afterglow remains for young fans and some of their parents, too. In sports, Celtics win sunny and 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Indiana's medical licensing board is reprimanding an abortion provider who became the focus of attacks from conservative politicians last year. She's been fined $3,000. Dr. Caitlin Bernard spoke publicly about providing an abortion to a young rape victim from Ohio after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. NPR's Sarah McCammon has more. Dr. Caitlin Bernard's story of providing an abortion to an unnamed 10-year-old rape victim was first published by the Indianapolis Star. Republican Attorney General Todd Rokita quickly began questioning Bernard's credibility in statements on Fox News and elsewhere. In a complaint with Indiana's Medical Licensing Board, Rokita accused her of improperly disclosing patient information. Bernard's lawyer, Alice Morical, responded during a hearing Thursday. Physicians can talk to the media. The question here and what is charged is that the physician shared, Dr. Bernard shared protected health information. And the evidence will show that she did not share protected health information. Board members fined Bernard but decided not to put her on probation, noting that she's one of very few OBGYNs in Indiana who treat Medicaid patients. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Negotiators for congressional Republicans and the White House continue talks over the debt ceiling. There has been no agreement yet to raise the nation's borrowing limit. Highways and airports across the U.S. are expected to be crowded over the next several days. NPR's David Shaper reports 
People will be traveling for the Memorial Day weekend. United Airlines says this will be its busiest Memorial Day weekend in over a decade and expects to fly 2.9 million passengers. American is expecting to carry 2.9 million travelers too, and Delta 2.8 million, a whopping 17% increase over last year. Nick Callio of the industry group Airlines for America says this could be the busiest summer for air travel ever. And that's why it's crucial that all parties work together. That's the airports. The FAA, the air traffic controllers, the airlines all work together to make sure that we have as few disruptions as possible. Calio says the airlines have been on a hiring spree in hopes of averting a repeat of last summer's widespread flight delays and cancellations. David Shaper, NPR News. Voters in Turkey will cast ballots this weekend for the runoff presidential election. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan will face his challenger, Kemal Kilic Darolu. NPR's Peter Kenyon says many voters were unhappy with their choices in the first round of Turkey's elections two weeks ago. After the first round, as I checked in with voters, uh, the comments I heard most frequently reflected uh, this sharp disappointment with Turkish politics in general, plus a lot of worries for how long they can make ends meet. Uh, but there also seems to be a base of belief, maybe it's just a hope, that Erdogan is the one to turn things around, uh, despite his unorthodox economic policies that some are blaming for the soaring inflation we see now. You're listening to NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. House Minority Whip Congresswoman Catherine Clark says Republicans are asking for too much when it comes to spending cuts tied to the debt ceiling negotiations. Clark calls the cuts Republicans are proposing, quote, extreme. She says that includes cutting Medicaid for two million people. Clark claims the Democrats have the support needed to reach a deal on their side. She told NPR this morning that Democrats need just five Republicans to agree to the plan. So we are eager for them to come forward, meet the reasonableness that the White House has put forward with some appreciation of where they where the the position they are putting our economy in and the catastrophe that is days away. Without a deal by next week, the nation could default on its debts. The T is making a big change in its hiring process in hopes of getting new bus drivers on the road. It'll start hiring new drivers to full-time positions. Until now, new bus drivers had to work part-time for up to six months before being brought on as full-time workers. The union representing bus drivers in the city is applauding the change. It says the move brings the MBTA in line with transit agencies and other big cities. More than one million people in Massachusetts will travel this holiday weekend, and nearly all of them will be driving. The carpool lane on 93 South will open at 1 to help people heading to the Cape. It's going to be another busy summer there. The Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce says bookings for short-term rentals and hotels are already high for their peak season. WBUR's Ninjor and Wameka has the numbers. Accommodations on the Cape are about 80% booked for July to mid-August, according to the Chamber. That's comparable to the same time last year. But the rest of the summer season is just 40-50% to booked. Paul Nedzwicki heads the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce. He says there are more short-term rentals available this year. That has to do more with people, their time of stay is going back to sort of pre-COVID days. People aren't staying as long, so there's more availability. Nedzwicki says he still expects a strong summer season. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Zininjor and Wameka. Boston officials plan to give more than $700,000 to groups who work with immigrants in the city. The grants are from the mayor's office for immigrant advancement. They'll be used to fund legal representation and paperwork assistance for immigrants. It's 806. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. The Celtics season isn't over just yet. They beat the Heat 110-97 last night at the Garden to remain alive in their playoff series. Jason Tatum says the Celtics fed off the energy from the home crowd. I'm just glad we... We gave them something to cheer about, you know. We got the best fans in the league, and, you know, up until today, this series, we haven't gave them much to cheer for at home. So I was glad that our performance matched the energy. Boston still trails Miami three games to two. Game six will be tomorrow night in Miami. Tonight, the Red Sox open a three-game series against the Diamondbacks in Phoenix. Sunny today and in the 60s, clear overnight with a low around 50. Sunny tomorrow and in the 70s, sunny on Sunday. And in the 80s, Memorial Day will be sunny and in the 70s. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This week now ending can be remembered for several things. One is the death of of Tina Turner, and we will visit the Tina Turner Museum in a few minutes. Another is that my oldest child is graduating high school. What? Big ups. Congrats (laughs) to the Inskeeps, especially uh, dad and mom. Thank you. Congrats to everybody else graduating this season. Also this week, the Republican presidential field took firmer shape. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis both declared, so six candidates are in, few more are expected, and longtime Republican strategist Alex Conant is been watching all of this. Alex, welcome back. Good morning, Steve. Okay, gosh, a few months ago, there were a lot of surveys of Republican voters saying that many would like someone other than Trump to run as their nominee, even if they still love Donald Trump. But how are Republicans feeling now? Well, remember a couple of months ago, we had just lost badly in the 2022 midterm elections. A lot of races that we thought we were going to win. We won the House, but just barely. And Trump took a lot of the blame for that. But just a couple of weeks ago, I think when the Democratic prosecutor in New York indicted Donald Trump, dragged him to New York for a court appearance, that really rubbed a lot of Republicans the wrong way. The president got a lot of very favorable coverage, especially in conservative media, and the party started rallying around him again. And so you've seen a surge in his support and a drop in some of the other candidates since then. That would explain some of these polls that show Trump far ahead suddenly of any alternative? That's right. I think you've seen the party rally around him in recent weeks. But that said, if you talk to Republican voters, if you look at focus groups as I have, there is still a real openness amongst Republicans for something different. It's just not obvious who that person is. Not obvious who that person is, meaning that Ron DeSantis is no longer the obvious alternative as the political class would have framed him a few months ago. I think Ron DeSantis has clearly had a couple of weeks, and I'm not sure that his launch this week, which uh, stumbled out of the gates on, on Twitter, I'm not sure that that is going to help turn his ship around. 
Although, if you were to pick anyone right now, I think DeSantis would have to be the favorite to defeat Donald Trump simply because he's the only one showing any real life in the polls. He has reportedly about $200 million and a really good team around him, especially at the Super PAC, uh, to help kind of guide his ship. And so I think right now a lot of Republicans, especially a lot of Republican donors who who want to support somebody other than Donald Trump, are looking to Ron DeSantis. Hmm. But I think the field is about to get very crowded. Well, uh, Tim Scott is in. Not only is he not the only Republican candidate, he's not the only Republican candidate from South Carolina. Um, And I think nationally he's probably less famous, less well-known than Nikki Haley, the former governor and U.N. ambassador. But which of those two seems stronger to you? I know Tim Scott very well. I worked in the the Senate, as you know, for Marco Rubio, and and Tim Scott endorsed Rubio in 2016. He was one of our best surrogates in that campaign. He's a very gifted communicator, really liked by other senators. I thought it was very telling that Senator John Thune endorsed Tim Scott, was at his launch. I think Tim Scott is definitely somebody that people want to watch. I think he will definitely have a moment. Uh, he'll do very well in the Republican debates this fall. I think he's somebody that uh, could could really emerge as an alternative, especially if DeSantis doesn't doesn't catch fire here in the next couple of weeks. John Thune will mention one of the top figures in the Senate. I want to ask something else, uh, Alex. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, changed the Republican Party substantively, what it stood for. The party's still opposed to abortion, still in favor of tax cuts and some other things, but different views of uh, Medicare and Social Security, different views of free trade, different views of immigration, foreign policy, Russia. Is any of the other candidates who's declared or about to come in clearly trying to change the trajectory of the party in some way? I think several of them are. I mean, certainly Tim Scott. Tim Scott has really tried to position himself as a classical Reagan-esque Republican, talking about the power of free markets, the power of freedom, the the importance of America being an an example of the world, the the importance of Ukraine winning in Russia. I think Tim Scott has clearly tried to, to make some distinctions with Donald Trump. And I expect as other people enter the race, I think Mike Pence is going to run. Pence will also try to run as more of a classic Reagan Republican. Um, So I do think there is going to be several candidates who who want to represent the more traditional conservative lane. But you're right, Donald Trump has changed the party. The rise of populism within both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is real. And I think at its heart, that's what the 2024 Republican presidential primary on the Republican side is going to be about. Are we going to continue to be a populist party as Trump has pushed, or are we going to are we going to move back to being a more conservative party? Republican strategist Alex Conant, thanks so much. Thank you. An Indiana doctor became part of the national debate over abortion, and now the state medical board has reprimanded her. Dr. Caitlin Bernard went public about performing an abortion for a 10-year-old rape victim who'd come to her from Ohio. Indiana authorities accused her of violating privacy rules, and she faced questions in a contentious hearing. Do you have a tattoo of a coat hanger that says, trust women on your body? Objection. This testimony would be immaterial and irrelevant for this proceeding. The board fined Bernard, but it also said she may continue practicing. NPR's Sarah McCammon has been following the story. Sarah, good morning. Morning, Steve. How did Dr. Bernard end up before that board? Well, you should know this proceeding came after months of criticism of Dr. Caitlin Bernard by Indiana's Republican Attorney General Todd Rokita and other prominent conservatives nationally. You know, she came to attention last July, just days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, when Dr. Bernard told the Indianapolis Star about providing abortion to a 10-year-old rape victim who'd traveled to her state from Ohio after a near-total abortion ban took effect there in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Attorney General Rakita seized on that story, suggested Bernard hadn't properly reported the abortion under state law. That was proven false by documents the state released later. But after that effort fell apart, Rakita began investigating her and ultimately filed a complaint with the Indiana Medical Licensing Board. Now, Bernard told that board yesterday that her goal had been to inform the public about the real-world impact of abortion laws on her patients. I think it's important for people to know what patients will have to go through because of legislation that is being passed. Okay, what was the case that she'd done something wrong? So the state's lawyers argued that Bernard had acted inappropriately and with political motivations. They asked about her political beliefs, including that question we heard earlier about a tattoo. Corey Voigt, who's with Rukita's office, the attorney general, accused Bernard of using her patient's story to, quote, further her own agenda. This case is about a decision that Dr. Bernard made to speak about her patient to a reporter for the largest newspaper in Indiana. Now, the attorney general has claimed, one, that Bernard violated patient privacy laws, and two, that she failed to properly report the rape to Indiana authorities. Well, if the attorney general was going to accuse her of a political agenda, did anyone accuse the state of furthering their political agenda here? Certainly, Bernard supporters have accused the attorney general of politically motivated attacks from the beginning. They've noted that this is, you know, a very unusual process. Uh, But her lawyers yesterday largely stuck to the facts. They pointed out that she reported the rape to hospital social workers in Indiana in line with standard protocol, as she does in similar cases involving patients who are minors. And the licensing board sided with Bernard on that one, but a majority of members said they thought she gave too many details about the patient to the press. Um, She did point out that her employer, the University of Indiana Health System, did its own review last year and found that she had complied with patient privacy law. If the board says she did something wrong, why can she continue practicing in Indiana? Well, they they talked about going a step further than this and putting her on probation. But, you know, Steve, they discussed the fact that Bernard is one of a very small number of OBGYNs in Indiana who accept Medicaid in a state where more than a third of women who give birth rely on Medicaid. And the board ultimately said they can't afford to lose a doctor like Caitlin Bernard. Hmm. NPR Sarah McCammon with an update on a story in my home state. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. The museum dedicated to the late queen of rock and roll is just a few miles from where Tina Turner grew up in Nutbush, Tennessee. Since the singer's death on Wednesday, the Tina Turner Museum in Brownsville, to be precise, has been busy. So busy that executive director Sonia Outlaw-Clark extended the museum hours. It's crazy around here. That's because hundreds of fans are crowding into a relatively small former schoolhouse. It's a one-room African-American schoolhouse that actually traces back to her great-uncle who built it, Benjamin Flagg. It still has original floors, ceilings, walls. It still has the desk and benches from the school, as well as the puppies on the wall that the kids would have used for their books and their coats. And it's filled with Tina Turner memorabilia, costumes, awards, photos, artwork, and a piece of her grade school past. My favorite piece is the yearbook uh, because it shows her before she ever started her music career. But it also shows they asked the students what they wanted to be and she listed entertainer. 
So we know she had aspirations of that even before she left Brownsville. She went on to thrill audiences with her voice and live performance. Outlaw Clark says it's Turner's personal triumphs, especially her escape from an abusive husband and then her reinvention as a solo artist that fans admire most. Probably the biggest legacy that she's leaving, and I mean, you gotta be pretty big to top the music career, is her story. Her story of overcoming, of becoming whatever you wanna be, of hard work and making things happen regardless of where you came from or what your circumstances are. The Tina Turner Museum hosts a Twilight Memorial on Sunday. Face to face. You present your kids. Yes, I know. You keep telling me that you love Don't tell me you're not moving. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, a Texas House committee has filed articles of impeachment against GOP State Attorney General Ken Paxton. Investigators accuse him of a list of illegal acts. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com Jean Luen Yang's 2006 graphic novel American Born Chinese has been made into a TV show, and that meant changing some of the ways the story deals with Asian American identity and harmful stereotypes. Obviously the conversation about Asian Americans, about race in general, has changed from then until now. We'll dig into some of those changes on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. A free email newsletter called WB War Today brings the day's news straight to your inbox. This morning's edition takes a look at how a Supreme Court ruling on wetlands could affect Massachusetts and learn about a group of lighthouses being put up for sale by the government, including one in Plymouth. Get WB War Today every day. Just sign up at wbwar.org slash newsletters. Clear skies and highs in the 60s today. Still clear tonight with a low around 50. Tomorrow, sunny with a high in the mid-70s. Sunny and highs in the mid-80s on Sunday, then clear skies and back to the 70s for Memorial Day. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Season 2 of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at Paycom.com radio. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to talk about the nation's wetlands now. They're like your kidneys in that they filter the country's water, some of which we drink. They also provide habitats for wildlife and they help prevent flooding. But under a new ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court, more than half of the nation's wetlands no longer have federal protection. NPR's Nathan Roth has been covering this ruling and he's with us now to tell us more about it. Good morning, Nathan. Hey, good morning, Michelle. So walk us through this case that the Supreme Court ruled on yesterday. Yeah, so this was the culmination of a decades-long dispute between the Environmental Protection Agency and two property owners, a couple in northern Idaho that wanted to build a house near a lake in basically a boggy area. The issue is that the EPA considers that boggy area to be a protected wetland, meaning that the people would have more hoops to jump through. The property owners did not want to do that. They argued they shouldn't have to because they thought federal law, the Clean Water Act, never intended to protect boggy areas like the one they wanted to build in. The Supreme Court yesterday agreed. Okay, so remind me, what was the Clean Water Act meant to protect? At the most basic level, right, it's meant to protect the nation's water. But when you really look into the details of this, it gets really complicated because the Clean Water Act is notoriously vague about which waterways it actually intends to protect. So I won't bore you with all the kind of like legal jargon here, but there is a real question about whether the Clean Water Act just protects big rivers and lakes, or if it also includes, you know, seasonal streams, wetlands like the kind that this couple was looking to build on. But I take it that the reason we're talking about this is that there's more at stake here than one boggy field. Absolutely. It's why, you know, industry developers, basically all sorts of folks across the country have been so interested in how this would shake out. And it's why the Supreme Court has already weighed in on the Clean Water Act scope multiple times. An environmental law expert I was talking to yesterday, Kara Horowitz at the University of California, Los Angeles, says this ruling that just happened seems different, more lasting, because generally, in all cases, the Supreme Court lets federal agencies decide how they they want to interpret law. This court is quite explicitly aggregating to itself the power to say what the law is and taking discretion away from agencies. Which is something that she says is really alarming because agencies are where subject matter experts are and the science that help determine these decisions. And what does the science tell us about which waters should be protected? What we know today, better than we did in 1972 when the Clean Water Act was written, is that waterways are connected not just in ways that we can see, but also in ways that we can't. And that even smaller or temporary bodies of water, you know, a stream that only comes alive after a big rainstorm, Those are also really important. A third of the U.S. population gets water from systems that are fed by ephemeral or those kinds of seasonal streams. We also know that many of our water systems are threatened by a warming climate. This is why the EPA under the Biden administration has been trying to protect most of these waterways. It's why its administrator, Michael Regan, said he's deeply disappointed by yesterday's decision. And it's why a lot of water advocacy groups are now urging state and local agencies to step up to protect waterways themselves in lieu of federal protections. That's Nathan Rott. He's with NPR's Climate Desk. Nate, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. It's Friday, which is when we hear from StoryCorps, and today we hear from Melvin and Marvin Morgan. Mama called Daddy and told him to find two names because he had two twin sons. On his way to the hospital, he saw Marvin and Melvin funeral home. 
You say I got the two names? I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Melvin and Marvin did end up becoming morticians themselves, not in a funeral home, but in morgues in New York City. At StoryCorps, they talked about the calling they share, practicing that calling amid the deaths of the pandemic years and a childhood discovery that led them to their work. So my mom was down south, and we had to go look for great-grandmom's grave. We were walking past the cemetery, and our cousin, he pointed out and said, she's over there Remember somewhere. She's over there somewhere. Down south, the African-American cemeteries, separate from the Caucasian cemeteries, they were buried in unmarked graves, no headstone, no nothing. At that time, we were nine. I was really disturbed behind that. I said that one day they were going to see that people be buried right. So your first day of the mortuary, what you do? It was a heck of an experience to see my comrades cutting up a body with ease and not being frightened, which I was in the beginning. But I knew I was moving into the right field because I knew that I had an important job to do. What was the hardest thing you ever seen? We was at the apex center of this pandemic. You know, bodies coming from the elevator all the way down the corridor to the hallway to the morgue, lined up. It was hard, especially with the ones that, you know, you knew. I had friends that died, co-workers, the people that work in the hospital, and they all of them went to the freezer. And I would go and play music for them and talk to them. Don't think I'm crazy now. Some of these cases, you know, you take it home and it, it sits with you. I will talk to you so I can get over it. And vice versa. Right. Same that you do with me. I'm not afraid of death. But to be honest with you, something happened to my twin brother. Even though I do this job, I don't know if I'll be able to take it. And that's why I, I want to go out first. <laughs> you know, this young lady asked me the other day, she asked me about death. She said, well, am I going to heaven? I said, I don't know. No one can tell you where you came from. No one can tell you why you're here. And no one sure can tell you where you're going. Yeah. And I just hope I go out the right way. Melvin and Marvin Morgan for StoryCorps in New York. Melvin is retiring this week from Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. One more news event to remember this week. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. It's finally Friday on WBUR. Today's top stories are next, then coming up on Morning Edition at 845. Local Taylor Swift fans are still reeling in a good way after her three sold-out shows at Gillette Stadium. One mom who took her kids offers an ode to all the Taylor Swift parents. It's 829. Join WBUR on Thursday, June 8th at the Somerville Theater for the Moth Main Stage, featuring live music and true stories. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. And Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. Complexstories.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Debt ceiling negotiations between the White House and Republicans in Congress are expected to continue over the Memorial Day weekend. The two sides have less than a week to reach an agreement and pass a hike in the debt limit to avoid a potential default. President Biden continues to insist the talks are producing progress. House Minority Whip Catherine Clark blames Republicans for the lack of a deal. I think if they were not still fighting for extreme cuts, um, we would have a compromise. Clark was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wants the president to agree to sharp spending cuts as a condition for raising the debt limit. He says a deal will get done. Indiana's Medical Licensing Board is reprimanding a doctor in Indianapolis for speaking publicly about an abortion she performed on a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. The board determined Dr. Caitlin Bernard violated privacy laws when she spoke about the girl's treatment to a newspaper. She was fined $3,000. The state's attorney general wanted Bernard's medical license suspended. The doctor spoke about that. I think that if uh, the Attorney General Todd Rokita had not chosen to make this his political stunt, we wouldn't be here today. Yesterday's hearing lasted about 13 hours. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead of the holiday weekend, Boston officials are outlining steps to tamp down on violence this summer. The city will partner with community groups and organizations to provide meals and activities in the neighborhoods. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox says violence can increase in the warm summer months. We're coming out of COVID. You know, all the restrictions have gone away. There's a lot more outdoor events. There's a lot more outdoor activities. And so there's a lot more opportunities for people to come together in good ways and also unnecessarily bad ways if they don't always get along. The city also plans to monitor illegal dirt bike and ATV activity on streets. That often spikes in the summer months, too. On Beacon Hill, House and Senate lawmakers will soon begin negotiations on a compromise budget. The Senate approved its own plan yesterday. Part of that budget includes money to combat the uptick in drink spiking. Over $300,000 would be used to buy drug testing kits for bars and clubs in Boston. The money would also be used to create an awareness campaign on the issue. The Boston Calling Music Festival begins this afternoon at the Harvard Athletic Complex in Alston. As WBUR's Andrea Shea reports, the festival is now in its 10th year. Boston Calling has more than doubled in size since its 2013 debut at City Hall Plaza. It goes back to Mayor Menino having the faith in us to do something like that in an unlikely space. Co-founder and producer Brian Appel says when the Madison Square Garden Company purchased controlling interest in 2016, it enabled the fest to move and expand to Harvard's fields. We love this site. We spend a lot of time with public safety making sure that this event runs as well as it possibly can. So I do think and hope we'll be here for a long time. And there's room for future growth, Appel says, now that Boston Calling is part of Live Nation's festival division. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 8.33.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Celtics dominated the Heat last night at the Garden in Game 5 of their playoff series. The final was 110-97. to Boston still trails in the series three games to two. They can tie things up in Game 6 tomorrow night in Miami. Tonight, the Red Sox will be in the desert to play the Arizona Diamondbacks. A sunny Friday today. We'll have temperatures in the 60s. Tonight, those fall to the 50s. Then it looks like a great weekend. Sunny in mid-70s on Saturday. Sunny in mid-80s on Sunday. It drops back to the 70s on Monday for a sunny Memorial Day. It's 58 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Attorney General of Texas faces possible impeachment. Ken Paxton is a Republican, but so is the majority of the committee that says he abused his power. Investigators gave that legislative committee a list of alleged illegal acts, including bribery, obstruction of justice, and abuse of public trust. Paxton has denied all the allegations. He's repeatedly drawn national attention, as in 2020, when he joined the effort to overturn the presidential election, It's only now that he is losing some of his party's support. The Texas Newsroom's Sergio Martinez-Beltran is on the line from Austin. Hey there, Sergio. Good morning. As Michelle noted, hasn't Paxton been an attention-grabbing figure for many years? He has. Paxton first won the AG's office about a decade ago and has been reelected twice since then. He's a conservative and is very popular with Republican voters here in Texas and a big supporter of former President Donald Trump. Now, he's also controversial inside and outside of the Republican Party. That's in part because he's made a name by being strict on issues like voter fraud and for fighting with the Obama and Biden administrations over immigration, federal spending and medication abortion. But Paxton might be best known for this fact. He was indicted on securities fraud about eight years ago and has yet to face a trial. Uh, He's also facing a federal investigation over alleged abuse of his office. Okay, but his supporters stuck with him through all of that. Why are some in his party turning against him now? The whole reason for this House investigation, Steve, is because Paxton's office asked the Texas legislature for $3.3 million for a settlement he's on the hook for. Hmm. That money would go to four of his former employees who were fired in 2020 after making accusations about Paxton's alleged misdeeds related to a man named Nate Paul. Nate Paul is an Austin real estate investor and a political donor to Paxton. He was being investigated by the FBI. And according to the House probe, Paxton tried to use his office to intervene and even fight federal law enforcement. The legislature, however, doesn't want to pay for that settlement. So here we are. Now, the list of allegations against Paxton is very long. In fact, 
there are 20 articles of impeachment that include constitutional bribery, abuse of official capacity. But like you said earlier, Paxton denies any wrongdoing, and he's even accused the Speaker of the Texas House, who is also a Republican, of trying to push him out of office. Well, what are the next steps after this committee has taken its action? So now the articles of impeachment move to the House floor for a vote by the full chamber. It would only require a simple majority to impeach him. Hmm. And as it was mentioned earlier, that panel is led by Republicans. So this isn't necessarily a partisan vote. And we already know multiple Republicans will vote for this resolution. They will vote to impeach. Now, we still don't know when that will happen, but the final day of the legislative session is Monday. So if it doesn't happen by then, lawmakers will have to return to Austin. If the House votes to impeach him, Paxton will be suspended from his duties while the state Senate gets a trial prepared and decides whether to convict him. And the Texas Senate does indeed has the power to remove an attorney general from office. In fact, his wife, Angela Paxton, is one of the senators who would have to vote. That's the Texas Newsroom's Sergio Martinez-Beltran. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Three years ago this week, a store clerk thought George Floyd tried to use a fake $20 bill to buy something. Hours later, he was dead after one officer put his full body weight on Floyd's neck and three other officers who were there refused to intervene or get medical help. The horrifying episode put a worldwide spotlight on police violence in the U.S. and renewed calls for reform. One idea would make it a legal right for a person to receive medical care during a police interaction when someone is obviously in crisis or says they are. Selwyn Jones is George Floyd's uncle and is one of the people who's been pushing for this through his Hope 929 Foundation, and he is with us now to tell us more. Mr. Jones, welcome. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, ma'am. Well, the first thing I just wanted to ask is, how are you doing? You know, dear, I, uh, this isn't something that will ever leave me because I watched my big sister's baby boy horrifically murdered in the middle of the street by hatred, power, and control. I started moving forward on the 26th when I found out last year, and I've been advocating and trying to make a difference in other people's lives so no one else will have to go through that horrific pain that we had to go through. And it hasn't stopped, but I sure hope one day that it will. And when you say that you hope that it will stop, what what are you referring to there? Police brutality or racism in a whole. I'm tired of going to funerals. I really am. But it's something that I have to do to show people that uh, I am in this to win it. I'm in this to fight forever. So as we mentioned that you've been working to support federal passage of something called the Medical Civil Rights Bill that would establish the statutory right, the legal right to medical care during any police interaction where the person communicates that they're in a health crisis. Do you remember, like, how did the idea for this come about? You know, I never really thought about it. It never really dawned on me. But when we mention it to people and people go, isn't there a prevention measure now? No, there isn't. Robert and Lenore Brule in 2015, they decided that they would do their part and to make a difference in this world. And they created the Mental Civil Rights Bill, which basically prohibits a police officer from doing the thing that they did to George Floyd, Eric Garner. Because as soon as a suspect bellers, I'm hurt. I need medical assistance. They have to, in a a minimal amount of time, get them handled and assist medical assistance to them. One of the things that we see, you know, after your nephew died, there were demonstrations like 
not just all over the country, but all over the world. I just wondered if you feel like progress is still being made toward the things that you care about or not. I think that every day we wake up, we have a chance and a choice. And there's a lot of people that make the choices to not give us a better chance. And that's just about being a person of color. And for the first time, I think, in my life, we actually have a shot to make a difference. Do you feel you're making progress? I feel every day I wake up, I can look in the mirror and say to my nephew, my mama, my son, and say, I'm doing my part. I was uh, sitting in a parking lot at a motel that we own, and I would watch my little four-year-old ride his go-kart around the little track we made, and that was my destiny. That's what I was going to do until I die. Watch that little boy grow. And uh, I had to stop watching him ride that go-kart because I had to start protecting everybody else's uh, lives. So I think that winners don't quit and quitters don't win. And whether I'm making a difference or not, I'm not going to quit. Selwyn Jones is George Floyd's uncle, and he's the co-founder of the Hope 929 Foundation. Mr. Jones, thank you so much for talking with us. God bless you, sister. Thank you. This is NPR News. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, we get an update on the debt ceiling negotiations from Massachusetts Congresswoman and Democratic House Minority Whip Catherine Clark. Now the forecast and WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce thinks you'll like it. Uh, she says that it will. we will have highs in the... S- 60s today, 70s tomorrow, 80s on Sunday, then back to the 70s on Monday. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Boston-based Eversource is leading its leaving its wind power development partnership with Ersted. The two were working together on a wind farm off the Massachusetts coast. Eversource will sell its interest in the project back to the Danish energy company, but will keep its shares in some other East Coast projects. Lexington-based T2 Biosystems is laying off 30 percent of its workforce. That's about 40 people. The cuts come as the company looks for a potential buyer. Its revenue has dropped more than 70 percent this year amid a decline in COVID-19 test sales. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We're coming up on a week since Taylor Swift's three shows at Gillette Stadium, and many fans are still riding a euphoric high, including WBUR commentator Joanna Weiss. She was there with a group of her daughter's friends and their moms. And Weiss says this audio essay goes out to all the Taylor Swift parents. My chosen outfit for the Taylor Swift concert did not pass muster with my 18-year-old daughter. While the pants were fine, bell-bottoms I bought years ago, but my child did not approve of my plaid flannel shirt. 
I thought it looked country and would be warm. She was not convinced. Instead, she tried to outfit me in a pink spandex shirt roughly the size of a paperback book. When I declined, she pulled out a gigantic fuzzy jacket in cotton candy pink that made me look like a scoop of strawberry ice cream. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes and the flashback starts. I'm standing there. Scoring seats to the concert of the century was a commitment of time and money, but for those who pulled it off, it was a memory for life. If you got to be with your kid in her happy place, the joy was doubly deep. So how'd we do it? Miracle of miracles, we got into the pre-sale last October. Twelve of us signed up to try. My daughter and her five high school besties scattered at six different colleges and their wistful moms who were imagining a day in May when the girls would be back home again. I've never been more stressed. Log in precisely at 10. Do not, under any circumstances, hit refresh. And whatever else happens, don't click the back browser. Did I hit refresh? Indeed. Did I hit the back browser? You bet. But I made it into the queue, watched the buffer bar inch toward the right. Eureka! Walking through a crowd, the village is aglow. Kaleidoscope of loud heartbeats under coats. We had a concert day plan, of course. We took two cars, one for the girls, another for the moms, and plenty of food for a tailgate. Sandwiches, a ton of carbohydrates, cupcakes adorned with Taylor toothpicks. Cheers, everybody! Thanks for making this happen, girls. As we approached a traffic light on Route 1, we spied a police officer stone-faced behind his sunglasses. I thought he must have been having a rotten day. Then I heard him barking at car after car. Why are you not singing over there? <laughs> Music's not loud enough. It's a fun time. Let me hear you sing. I don't know any of the lyrics, I'll be honest. Sure, there wasn't much singing in the mom's car, but in the girl's car, well, there were ultra-loud versions of Enchanted, Love Story, and Shake It Off. There were selfies and goofy nicknames and inside jokes, a secret language that doesn't fade even when you've been apart for months. As we walked toward Gillette from our parking spot two miles down the road, our girls' outfits in reputation black and lover-era pink merged with a sea of flowing country dresses and sequin pants. Moms and kids parted once we got to the stadium. We made the best of our nosebleed seats, three rows from the top, behind the stage, as we watched other people's kids in states of bliss. We marveled at how so many of them knew every syllable of every song, from Cruel Summer to You Belong With Me, and sang them all with Taylor, like an echo. I'm happy to report the pink fuzzy jacket served me well as the sun went down. The pockets were big enough to stash my gloves and a beanie hat. And more than once, as I shivered happily, I contemplated the tiny speck of Taylor far below. I wondered how someone crossing a massive catwalk in high-heeled boots and a sequin leotard could possibly perform in the cold for three and a half hours straight. She must have fed off the energy of 70,000 people singing along. Someone said her parents were there, too. Joanna Weiss is a writer and editor. You can read her essay and many more at WBMR.org.
Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. We'll hear from doctors trying to help the wounded during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we'll get a preview of Sunday's runoff elections in Turkey. It's 8.49. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Maisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Negotiations are not expected to resume until Tuesday as the deadline to raise the debt ceiling or risk a default gets closer. Two members of the far-right Oath Keepers group are expected to be sentenced to prison today for their participation in the January 6th attack. And more than one million Massachusetts residents are expected to travel for the long Memorial Day weekend. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton with summer classes for all ages, including teen art camp in fashion design, ceramics, painting and drawing, and more. NewArtCenter.org. 60s today under sunny skies, 50s tonight, and it stays clear. Tomorrow is sunny Saturday in the mid-70s. We may reach the mid-80s on Sunday under sunny skies. It stays sunny for Memorial Day but drops back to the 70s. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston at 8.50. Memorial Day is the unofficial start to summer, and that means the start of summer reading season. If you're looking for some great recommendations to add to your library, sign up for our Beach Books newsletter. Whether you want a romance, thriller, fantasy, or any other genre, we have you covered. Sign up at WBUR.org newsletters. A debt ceiling deal? Maybe? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. We may soon have a deal to raise the debt ceiling. White House and Republican congressional negotiators are reportedly close to the finish line. Is that for real? Well, details of what that deal is likely to include and exclude are starting to leak out. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. Negotiators appear to be nearing an agreement to raise the debt ceiling for a two-year period that would carry the country well past the next presidential election and into the next Congress when the power dynamics could be different. In exchange for a debt ceiling increase, the White House has reportedly agreed to a two-year cap on non-defense discretionary spending that includes things like education and law enforcement. Republicans are said to have dropped demands to raise defense spending further than the White House has proposed. Among the final sticking points appear to be Republicans' insistence on new work requirements for recipients of certain federal assistance programs, such as food aid and Medicaid. The White House is said to be resisting that change. A deal could be announced as early as later today or this weekend, less than a week before the government could run out of money to pay all of its bills. I'm Nova Safa for Marketplace. Social media use by young people in the U.S. is nearly universal, and it may be harmful to them. That's according to an advisory out this week from the Surgeon General. The report says a third of teenagers are on social media, quote, nearly constantly. 
There can be benefits to that, but there can be costs, too. One place that's grappling with where and how students access social media? Schools. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more. At Huntley High School in Northern Illinois, Principal Marcus Beelan says the majority of discipline issues get started on social media. You made a comment to me or said something to me or tagged me in something at 9 o'clock at night. The first time I'm going to see you is at 7.30 when we walk in the building and a fight breaks out. Beelan says it's hard to control how students use social media outside the classroom and that some have trouble regulating their use inside it, too. Like their phone physically has to be within arm's reach or on their person in order for them to feel some level of comfort. And in the college classes he teaches, Jim Steyer of the digital literacy nonprofit Common Sense Media bans social media use. He says it diverts students' attention, and there's a real cost to that. We're going to have to spend more dollars to educate young people if they're distracted half the time. Also, Principal Marcus Beelan points out it's a skill to function without technology, both in some workplaces and in life. And if schools don't teach kids how to do that, they'll have failed them. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up three-tenths of a percent. Dow and S&P futures are about flat, with the Dow future up just 13 points. NASDAQ futures are up two-tenths of a percent. And yesterday, we pointed out the yield on Treasury bills maturing around early June, when the U.S. government is predicted to run out of money, had reached sky-high yields, around 7%, meaning investors saw them as higher risk. Well, those yields have come down a little, to about 5.7% for June 1st. It's a sign there is a little bit of optimism around those debt ceiling talks. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where you can discover a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for summer celebrations. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. Disney's live-action Little Mermaid opens today. It's expected to bring in more than $100 million at the box office this weekend. And while the movie is likely to make plenty of money for Disney, the real-life mermaid industry is likely to get a boost as well. Yes, there is a real-life mermaid industry. Marketplace's senior Washington correspondent and apparently certified mermaid, Kimberly Adams, has more on how one business in the industry is preparing. In Lincolnton, North Carolina, the staff at Finfolk Productions sew mermaid tails, long sleeves of thick swimsuit-like fabric with photorealistic scales and fins. So we've got our tiny Discovery fabric tails, which start off at $215. Abby Roberts started the business out of a garage with her twin sister, Bryn, a decade ago. Then our kind of signature fabric tails, as we call them, that have like the bigger flukes and stuff, those start at like $3.95 price and go up from there if you want to add fins. Their tails became so popular, they both dropped out of college to make tails full time. Here's Bryn Decker. It doesn't sound like a real job, but I promise that it is. (laughs) A job that's now a seven-figure business, housed in a renovated warehouse decorated with undersea landscape murals their dad painted. Abby says there's a waiting list three to four months long for the fabric tails. And then we have our silicone tails, which start at around $5,000. We actually haven't been taking orders for silicone tails for a couple of years, but we just get caught up on our wait list. 
You heard that right. They have a years-long wait list for $5,000 mermaid tales. And they expect even more business once the movie's out. While I was visiting, the staff did a photo shoot for a new tail design, printed sea green scales with pink and blue accents inspired by the movie. There's a thousand gallon tank in the basement where a model flips and spins underwater, showing off the extra fins and embellishments on the tail and combing her hair with a fork, just like Ariel. Oh, cute, 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 cute. They even let me test out a tail, a darker, moodier palette. I can tell you, trying to do an elegant turn in a giant fish tank with a smile on your face, not easy, even with a cheering squad. The Roberts sisters are preparing for even more people to try mermaiding after they see the movie. We're going to have to bring in more seamstresses for the summer and things like that. So we're really trying to get ahead of it. Because if the response to the new movie in the mermaid industry is anything like the response in the movie industry, they're going to be busy for quite a while. In Lincolnton, North Carolina, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jared Dang. Our engineers are Jessen Dooler and Nick Esposito. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Take WBUR with you wherever you go this weekend. Listen to us on our mobile app or at WBUR.org. You can listen to us anywhere on the globe. And a shout out to Sam, who listens to WBUR from Auckland, New Zealand. Thanks for being with Morning Edition today and all this week on WBUR. Sunny in 60s today, 50s tonight, then sunny all weekend. It's 59 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.